inasmuch. It's a, it's a word you only see in the Bible, really. Inasmuch. Three words made into one. Meaning to the extent that. Inasmuch as, or to the extent as. To the degree which. Or you live in such a manner as. Inasmuch. Jesus uses the word. We'll get to that soon. Inasmuch to the extent you live your life, how are you living your life? And is your life being lived with the appropriate purpose and depth of meaning? Inasmuch. Uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, we talked about your life being a story. Usually there are about four different characters in a story. Some of us play these different characters at different times. The first one I mentioned was, of course, a victim. Sometimes we are truly a victim. We are victimized, we are wronged, we are betrayed. Um, the Holocaust, obviously, you have victims. 25% of our culture is abused, victimized. Children are victimized. Human trafficking is the victimization. Um, pornography is the objectification of women. It's a victimization. Uh, some of us play the role of a victim, though we really weren't truly victims. In other words, a true victim or one who is not a victim can, if they so choose, develop a victim mentality. This is a problem. A victim mentality and a victim mindset uh, pretty much ruin our lives. Those are two, two of the things that we can do. We can be a victim with a victim mindset and we can place, play the role of the villain. The villain is one who has been victimized but is now against everything and everyone in their life so as to put them down to exalt themselves, so as to rationalize their behavior or to elevate their opinion of themselves by putting others down. Those, those two things in our culture right now are probably the two most prevalent, distinctive things that this culture is dealing with. The victimization of a person, a victim mentality that follows where every, everything is going against them, or the second thing, to play the villain, to put everybody down. Those two things. The third, the third character, of course, is the victor. It is the person who at one time was a true vic a victim or perhaps had a victim mentality or even was the villain in their own life. Maybe even self-loathing on some level, the, that victor comes out of that weakness. And, and the victor who's come out of that weakness is so even more the hero in their own life. They've overcome. They might slide back in on a bad day, bad afternoon, bad discussion, but all in all, the hero, the victor, is now lead, the lead protagonist in their own life. And of course, they don't do that on their own. They do that with the help of a voice. Every character in every story and every movie has a voice, a counselor, a mentor, a coach, a therapist, a, a family member, somebody speaking into their life bringing them beyond where they are, out of victimhood, out of villainhood, into their own story that has purpose and meaning. That was week one. Week two, 
We talked about mindsets and, and mentalities. We get, uh, unfortunately, set in this hardening concrete of a mentality where if we're not careful, it, be, it can become permanent, that we don't expect anything outside this mentality, not even beyond it. We don't expect much out of anybody, really. Maybe we expect too much and we're constantly disappointed. But the fact of the matter is, the way we perceive the world, the way we think, the way we interact with one another, the way we define God, interact with him or don't, has all seemingly been solidified and it's hard to go beyond that mindset. Uh, I liken this to, uh, uh, as I talked about this trip to New York my wife and I made. The food was phenomenal. The pastrami in the deli, the corned beef, the, 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 the meal, I mean, it was just off the charts. I'm trying to think, how do these people eat like this all the time? They must be so disappointed when they go somewhere else. These things are off the chart good restaurants. And we landed in Asheville and had to make a decision. Gee, do you wanna go to Ruby Tuesdays or do you wanna go to Culver's and get a butter burger? Our mentality is such that we become accepting of even mediocrity. And we have to be reminded now and again that there's more to the Lord, there's more. We have to, listen, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 and eight. We have to taste. Uh, some of you like wine. I never really got into it. But when you drink wine, what I learned from observation is uh, there's a big, has to do with fragrance. There's a lot to do. Taste and fragrance go together as two senses. Everybody knows that. It has to breathe. I don't really get that. And you acquire a taste for wine. Now, if you want to talk about acquiring a taste for beer, I have three lifetimes experience in that. Though it's been 35 years since I've had one, I developed an appetite for a taste for most any of them. Well, we do that with the Lord too. We, 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 we taste, but sometimes he doesn't have the flavor other people are explaining to us or describing. And our mindset, our limitations, our lack of understanding, our lack of a voice in our life threatens us really going beyond where we're at. It's tragic. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need a sensitive palate, a sensitive spiritual palate you know, that's why I come in here. We don't plan half this stuff we do in the service. We have to be sensitive to the moment, to be sensitive to the presence of God, the heart of God. If you came into a church service, it's the same every single time you came. I'd have to say, God's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, but he's the same every minute of every day. And I know that's not the case. There's a story that uh, uh, King David went down to the orchestra director who was leading the worship throughout the day as they were rehearsing. And David inquired of the orchestra director, how is the Lord today? And what an appropriate question. Who else would you ask? When you're worshiping, you can tell if the Lord is full of joy or is, is he angry, is he jealous? What's going on? Let's interact with him, let's taste. 
Let's have a meal. Let's have a spiritual meal. Here's a spiritual meal. What is the tenor of the Lord right now? What is he, where is he in your life? What are you feeling from him? Is, are you convicted of your sin? Are you encouraged? Are you hopeful? Are you resting in him? Are you, there's all kinds of flavors. All kinds of flavors. We cannot afford to have a mindset and mentality where you come to church and you do the same thing in the same manner, expect the same thing and blow on out of here. No, this is a personal relationship, not a idol fashioned by the hands of man. This is a, this is a God with a personality, with an essence, with, with desires, with frustrations, just like you have and I have. And we interact with him and we have to develop that spiritual palate. You have to do that at home with your Bible. You have to, you have to develop this acuity to the sensitivity to the, to the person of God, to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's a, he's a convictor and sometimes he's a encourager and sometimes he's a, just love, like liquid love, like a 10,000 waterfalls. He's all kinds of things to us when we need him to be that most. So victim, villain, victor, voice, mindsets, mentalities, taste and see, develop a sensitivity. In as much as you do these things, in as much as you do these things, to the extent you do these things, your, your spiritual walk, your life becomes quite interesting. If you're bored with your faith, you're missing something. You need a voice in your life. You need someone to help you. You need a partner. You need, you need to shake it up. I find this God anything but boring. I find him at times uh, racing ahead of me, at times behind me, slowing me down, at times blowing my mind, at times celebratory, at times painful. I, I, I never find this God predictable in as much to the extent that, to the degree that you seek him, these things. So what can we understand about this God? What, let's, let's stretch, please, please, let's stretch where we are a little bit anyway. How does this God we worship perceive us and life? Uh, well, he perceives us as the apple of his eye. He, he perceives us like you looked at your child when they were first born for the first time. He perceives us as interesting. He's attentive. He's involved. He's a Quite focused. He sees us as agents and ambassadors to carry out his will. And the craziest thing about it is he's counting on us to do that. This is weird. How does, he, how does God perceive worship? Well, he, he evaluates our intentions and actions and our authenticity, <coughs> our obedience. What does this God we worship impart? How does he impart his values to us? He doesn't. He doesn't impart values to us. He imparts himself to us. And through himself, his spirit, our values change. If you're looking for God to change your values, change your morals, change your, your want-tos, you're, you're asking too little of a God who wants to inhabit your literal frame this this is the sanctuary not this 
He wants, he doesn't want to change your priorities. He wants to change you. He doesn't want, he doesn't want, you know, all of a sudden to get you to think differently. He wants to totally renew your mind, uh, the whole thing. He wants you to receive him daily, the power of the Spirit of God. This is where it becomes fun and interesting. How does he measure time? It's crazy. The, the enormity and infinitude of God. As our little granddaughter said, he's humongous. The humongousness of God. The ancient of days, we even sang about it. The ancient of days, like he goes back. He's been forever. He had created time. But, but he doesn't get into all of that. He doesn't think in terms, he thinks in terms of, here it goes, 24 hours. 24 hours. If you want to understand God, he, he thinks and you can, you can experience him in 24-hour increments. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. That's how he taught us to pray. Don't pray for daily bread for a year or nine months or three months or a week. Today, I want, to I want you to experience me today. So listen, if your experience with him is not daily, you, you're disconnected with him before you even get started. He's thinking of today. We're worried about tomorrow. He's a day. Today is it. Today's all you got with him. Between now and midnight is pretty much what he's focused on as it pertains to you. Doesn't want to miss an opportunity to be with you, to fellowship with you, to teach you something, to challenge you, to build you up, to be the lifter of your head. Today, today's on his mind. And he wants today to be on your mind. Give us this day our daily bread. Matthew 6, 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Some of us are living out somewhere from today. That's called anxiety. You're living in something that hasn't even happened yet, and it's got you freaked out. That's because you're not living in today. I would even say is, today is a long way off for God. God's more interested in the present moment. Are you present in this moment? Are you present in your conversations with people? Are you aware and present? He's moment to moment, but day is a long time for him. Don't worry about tomorrow. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. When does he feed his people? Daily, pretty much. He's really out there into the future, isn't he? Tomorrow is future. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He's a day God. He's a day trader. He wants to trade the old you for the new you. He's got the new you. He's a day trader, one day at a time. Ephesians 4 and 27, don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, you might have a story going on in your life. You might be in a special chapter of your life. You might be in a season of recovery. You might be in a, in a season of, of really conquering or being more than a conqueror. It doesn't matter what season you're in. What he's pretty much interested in is today. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, says the one day isn't all that long folks you got to get it 
at the right time headed in the right direction or half the day's gone and you missed it. You get enough missed days, you're missing God. He's in today, he's in the moment. And he wants you to praise him from the rising of the sun to going down to the same. That's what he's interested in today. So your story is gonna be told one day at a time. And we move into these mentalities and these mindsets in daily increments. If you wanna change your life, change what you do in your life today. Some of you have, as I said a couple weeks ago, and this is natural. From time to time, we have to deal with boulders in our life, boulders in our workplace, boulders in our relationships. These big honking rocks that seemingly are immovable and we push on them and we pry them from underneath and we try to get them out of the way and we realize, well, we can't really do it, so we gotta get God pushing or picking up or pushing or leveraging the thing out of the way. Most boulders exist in our life and become obstacles to us because we didn't live moving pebbles every day. If you just deal with pebbles, you can fix a relationship, you can reach your goals, you can make the money you need to make for your family. Most of, most of it is just small pebbles. May I invite you after moving a boulder out of your way that took you 12 months to get over to deal with pebbles, small things, small, manageable, easy things that accumulate day by day and become a new mindset, a new mentality. I call it rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Um, let's leave the spiritual aspect of things out of it for now. If it's a financial thing and you want to save money, you save in very small increments. You stash a little aside. You pay off a little debt. Maybe the $100,000 boulder you got to pay off is too much at one time. For a lot of us, it is. Well, you just got to be a plotter and a planner. Each day, you move a pebble or two over and you minimize the size of the boulder. Financially, that's where some of us need to be. We need to start early, be a plotter and a planner. And when the end of your life comes, you're gonna have some dough, some dough ray me because of the pebbles. Uh, in a relationship, if you gotta fix a totally wrecked relationship, you gotta do it pebble by pebble, small thing by small thing. And don't expect the other person to recognize it right away. You have to do like 20 pebbles before they go, hey, I just noticed this person is actually doing something a little bit different. The boulder's too big. Spiritually speaking, or physically speaking, you gotta do it, you gotta, all right, to really get physically fit, I have to tell you this. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to work out the first time. And then after that will be the second time, right? You can't go second first. 
You have to do the first time. And it's funny. Running is something that I used to be really, really good at. My knees have gone probably because of it. But when you start, it's difficult. But after a while, it's effortless. And then the thought of not doing it is catastrophic. There's nothing like, well, it's pretty good. There's a lot of things better, but nothing like a runner's high. The effortlessness of, of, of running 20 miles like you're on air. But you gotta, have the first, you gotta do the first one. I meant to tell you that. It's kind of important. Spiritually speaking, because of the nature of the God we're worshiping, it's a daily thing. And this is why we have something called a daily devotion. All right, but I even think, in my personal opinion, I think that's incomplete. What I mean by that? If you want your life to have purpose and meaning, if you want your family's life to have purpose and meaning, if you want, you should have a story for your family and everyone in your family. I regret not doing this. Your family, your children, and your grandchildren, your family should have a story. And, and that story is, this is what we're about, and we're the characters in our story, and this is what we're trying to achieve together for, for someone beyond our family, or some people beyond our family. Number one. Number two, that story has to be unfold daily. What most of Christians do, and there's nothing wrong with it. Actually, I'm saying there is something wrong with it. It's not complete. Is you get in the word, you have your devotion, you have your prayer time, perfect, beautiful. We're growing spiritually, love it. Grow spiritually, grow in depth, wonderful. But it's not complete. You actually have to do something with that. You don't get to heaven and go, Oh my gosh, look who just showed up. This guy is deep. This is the guy we've been talking about for 70 years. He's got the deepest walk of anybody I've ever seen in my life. His daily devotions, we would all sit on the foyer of heaven and watch this guy have his devotion and the revelations that would come and the scripture they would memorize. What did he do with it? Not a stinking thing. Faith without works. I was watching, I rented a movie. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. A two-day rental. This is how cold it was outside. For $19.99. Boys in the Boat. Who's seen that movie? Okay, all right. Everyone in this church is required to see the movie by next Sunday. True story of uh, a crew team, a rowing team. Uh, directed by George Clooney, I guess. Great movie. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but they're at the starting line of a race. There's a lot of races. And the coach, who's, who's not the funnest guy in the world either, says, hey, this isn't about style, look. This is about one thing, speed. You don't get points 
You don't get time taken off for a nice uniform. Whoever crosses the finish line first wins. That's the way this, this is, that's how this is done. You cross the finish line first, you win. In our life, we have to cross the finish line. We have to do something with our understanding and our knowledge and our friendship and our intimacy with God. As wonderful and necessary, all of those things are, we have to do something with it. It has to be shared with someone else. It has to be invested in someone else. It has to be given away. It has to be testified to. It, you have to celebrate and testify to what God has done in your life. It has to impact someone else. It's not for our own personal enjoyment. God is not a hobby. He wants us to do something with what he gives us daily to give to someone else. Okay? Now, some people lean too far one way and others lean too far the other. We're not called to live a cloistered monastic lifestyle wherein the only recipient of the grace of God in our life is us. We're called to live among other people who have similar issues, who have been victim, victimized, have a victim mentality, who are villains in their own life, are villains in their own family, villains to their own career, and we're supposed to impart to them something we've got from God. Not only that, we're supposed to impart God to them, not what he's given us. Because all he's really given us is himself, okay? So at the end of the day, the, the, the goal is not to have this rich, unique relationship with Christ and then die. The goal is to have that unique, rich, intimate relationship with Christ and having tried every single day of your life with his help to get rid of it. That's, that's daily devotedness to him for the purpose of helping someone else. That's purpose and meaning. And, and there's a lot of people out there that have been victimized and they have a victim mentality. And it may not be you, but how do we minister to them and how do we know? What do we see, what do we hear from them that tells them, tells us where they're at? So we can know what's going on. You should know, you should study the scripture, but you should study, and I should too, the people in your life. Observe them, listen to them, watch them, watch their mannerisms. Go to dinner with them and watch their, their, um, their uh, what am I talking about here? Get, and how do they act? What do they say? What do they do? How do they sit? How do they, what do they pay attention to? When do they connect with their eyes? When do they look away? What do they not want to talk about? What do they love to talk about? When, why do they never shut up? Why can you not get them to say anything? How do you minister to that person? And most of the time, those without Christ have kind of a victimization going on. A lot of people do. What do victims do? They, they have ledgers in their hearts and their minds and they take, keep score of moral failures. They look for mistakes made in people's lives and they hold on to them. They become moral police in people's lives so as to keep up with uh, where people are, where they're not, and the mistakes they've made so it rationalizes the fact that, that they're not doing much either. A victim is, is usually always defensive. On the defensive. Assuming someone's attacking them when they're actually not. Uh, coping and protecting their own heart, their own mind, their own bodies uh, with a defense mechanism, with some sort of wall around them to keep them from getting hurt anymore. 
Things are always gonna be this way. Things are never gonna be the way you want it to be. Protect, defend, keep yourself from getting hurt again. And I'm not talking about people that are up in years, or I'm talking about every age. These people, us included, we're all guilty of this. Need to come to the understanding that love keeps no record of wrongs. If you look at your spouse, and it's not hard for you or for me to look at your spouse and recall a litany, a list, synchronized chronologically, by time of day, by holiday, whatever, however you organize this ready list you pull out of every wrong they've ever done. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Victimization, the way to minister to that person is, is, to, is the love of Christ, but a love that keeps no record of wrongs. I get it all the time. Someone will come into the office and they'll sit on the sofa. It takes about 15, 17, 18 minutes. And then they just start unloading on the person they sit next to on Sunday morning. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's a mentality, that's a mindset, that's a protective thing. That's how you minister to people like that. But, but how do you undo that? How do you, does it, do you just, I get so tired of this. There's this idea that, here's a mindset and mentality, there's this idea that if I go to this altar, this church, and this guy lays hands on me, I'll be delivered, I'll be set free. If, or if I go to another church and they do that, or another church, okay, never mind 25 solid years of being a victim and being defensive and protecting yourself. Never mind all of that. Can God do that in an instant? Absolutely. Does he normally do it that way? No. Pink Floyd had it right. Just another brick in the wall. Every day, we start building a new life, a new mentality, a new mindset. Hadrian, the emperor of Rome said, brick by brick, brick by brick. He was thought to have said that after a horrific fire in Rome. How do you rebuild Rome? Brick by brick. It's the daily devotion, it's the daily mindset, it's the daily healing is what God gets most interested in. Day by day, pebble by pebble, not boulder by boulder. We want instant because of the culture we live in. And I hate to say this, try not to keep a record of wrongs. They're getting a little squirrely over there at the Methodist church, I know that. A little weird, but one time they had it right. Very methodical. That's why they're called Methodists. When they came out of Savannah, over from England, started riding around having these meetings and the Holy Spirit was moving, yeah. They put a method, a daily method, a, a mechanism of growth, brick by brick, day by day, pebble by pebble. And that's hard to do nowadays. Fix your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Colossians three and two. 
the, the true daily devotion has within it a mission. If you know what your mission is, you repeat it and rinse it every day. Next week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you how to do that. I have actually sat down with people in this church. This to me was a little odd when I did it for the first time. And um, we planned out their funeral. So we're, we're planning out the music and the order and the speakers. We have everything on there but the date and the time. And the more I did that with people, the more I thought, that's, that's great. They want their funeral to minister to the people that are there. They want their life to speak something to those they leave behind so as to, to foster some kind of legacy, some kind of continuation. It's great. So I, you know, I tell you, I read on this stuff. I, Stephen Covey, who wrote, Dr. Stephen Covey wrote the seven habits of a, a effect, highly effective people. Donald Miller, hero on a mission. They, they encourage somebody to write their eulogy. A eulogy probably best has four or five subjects in it. Your eulogy written by you is what people, you would want people to earnestly hear about your life as it pertains to family, friends, work, church. What would you want accurately, authentically said about your life as they looked at your family, your friends, your work, and your church? If you were to write that, what God, you feel like God is calling you to in meaning and in purpose. I, I get young married couples to do this because I wish someone had told me this. What do you want your marriage to look like? And when you die, what will be said about it as seen by others in those four areas? And every day you read that eulogy. Now it can change over time, but you are mindful of rinsing and repeating every single day. What is my purpose and mission in life? What has God called me to? And how do I not neglect some of the most paramount things in my life? Maybe your eulogy has something to do with parenthood, marriage, parenthood, your career, your church. I, I see, me. I, this is something I struggle with sometimes. I look around and I, I think and I pray for the church and I pray for people. And oftentimes, I'm asked to do a funeral. And I ask myself, What, what would I say at that funeral? Like, I'm thinking funeral. Nobody else think of funeral. What would I say about that person at their funeral? The saddest funeral that I personally have ever been to was for one of the people that I love the most on earth, my grandmother. Now, she knew the Lord but she knew nobody that could do that funeral for her. She knew no minister. They pulled some minister out of the funeral home and had some sort of canned vanilla message about living and dying. 
acting as though maybe he knew who my grandmother was. He never met her. That was the saddest thing I've ever seen. The best funeral. Easily the best funeral. Is that person who was never sought to be the greatest. Never wanted to be Billy Graham, didn't feel called to be Billy Graham. But they were the best version of themselves you could possibly be. They were the most loyal, faithful servants who quietly raised their family, loved their spouse, served their church, gave of themselves their heart, their treasure. Good, good man, a good woman. The, the, that is, to me, the pinnacle of purpose and meaning. After the first message in this little series, one of the people in the congregation who I deeply respect sent me this. I hope it's okay. I'm not going to say your name. This person already had their purpose and meaning written down, their mission to seek and follow God's wisdom and plan for my life to encourage and inspire others to achieve their goals and dreams mentally, physically, and spiritually. You could have written that down with 20 other mission statements. I could have read all 21 of them and I would have nailed who wrote that because that person does just that. They're really not trying to make a name for themselves. They're there to encourage and gift and inspire and be enthusiastic towards other people and their venture to do what they're called to do. That's that person's mission. But if our daily devotion can rehearse what our short and long-term goals are and what our purpose and mission is in this life, day by day, pebble by pebble, brick by brick, you start to build a tabernacle of glory for God with the rest of your life. And that's a special thing. God actually rewards us for that kind of thing. I don't want to go into it now, but there's, there's actually perks involved in that. But for now, if you know what it is you want to do and you can articulate it and write it down because you have nothing till it's written down. Back up chapter two. Make the vision plain, write it upon tablets so the messenger can run with it. That's what your essence of your life is about. And you can every day Pray over that, look at it. You'll, you'll be surprised how much your mind reads what it is you feel God's calling you to do and how the gap between those two realities is shortened daily because of your mindfulness to it, your focus on it, your attentiveness to it, your intentionality, and your invitation to the Spirit of God to join you in the process. That's purpose and meaning. It's purpose and meaning beyond oneself for the glory of God in other people. I'm gonna read this to you, and this, this ought to wrap it up. This guy here says it a whole lot better than I can. His name is Jesus Christ. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer them and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch, inasmuch, to the extent that, to the manner in which, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Did, did, you, you acted. You served, you clothed, you fed, you counseled, you prayed for, you embraced, you hugged, you listened, you kept no record of wrongs, you did. You, you took the depth and the richness of your spiritual intimacy with me and you did something with it. <laughs> you did something. You didn't keep it for yourself. You did something inasmuch and to the extent as you did something, you did it unto me. Yes, one generation will proclaim to another the goodness of the, of the gospel of Jesus. You did something, you said something, you prophesied something, you encouraged someone, you shared a word with them, you shared a scripture with them, you did something, you clothed them with righteousness, not just clothing. Now you can, do, you can call this and end up with a social gospel, but still miss it. The daily devotion is the intimacy and the, and the friendship and the longing and the love and the togetherness for a purpose and a meaning beyond ourselves. Beyond ourselves. Inasmuch. Inasmuch. You live 70, 80, 90 years, 100 maybe. How does one encapsulate the did as it pertains to your family, your friends, your work and your church? And what emphasis did we place on that purpose, calling and meaning on a daily basis so as brick by brick to build for the glory of God with our life? You sing, you pray, you serve, you usher, you evangelize. If the total, totality of your daily devotion with Christ has become just about you, in the context of that intimacy, I urge you to consider repenting. The last thing you would expect someone to say about a daily devotion, if you've made it just about you, you know, I don't need to tell this to you, it is for you to receive and you to give. We have to find those outlets, purpose and meaning. I would say that the greatest victim, and there are millions and millions of victims, but one particular victim 
that I'm aware of had every solitary opportunity to defend himself, to make a case for himself, to defend his honor and his example, his teaching, his life, his father. If anyone on this earth was ever more wrongly accused and victimized physically and spiritually, it was Jesus Christ. No victim on earth can say that he can't relate to being a victim. You would expect defense, self-defense, vengeance. You would expect, I mean, something the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the lamb before the shears, silent, silent. Apart from these words, uh, forgive them, Father, uh, they know not what they do. Startling, really. The solitary last thing you would expect to be said in that moment was said. Not only said, but meant, forgive them, Father. Uh, they know not what they do. easily have been the villain, putting down movements and people. But you heard it today, right here. There is therefore now no condemnation those that are in Christ Jesus. Those apostles got ready to come out of their room and their huddle start to go all across the earth, make their way over to India, France, North Africa. They had to somehow be there for one another to remind one another daily of the mission. The mission that some of them already knew would lead to their death, their purpose and their meaning. Yes, they wanted the intimacy with Christ but they wanted the message more than anything else to be heard, received, acted upon. They wanted to build the kingdom. If you have any victim left in you, any unforgiveness, any scorn, vengeance left over towards another. You have to know it's keeping you from your purpose and your mission. And the victimization you so want never to have happened did happen. 
whether we want to admit it or not, on some level, it may be, it may be a tool to let someone else know who has been victimized themselves that they can be a victor. And you, my friend, may just be that voice in their life. The communicants would come forward. Let's prepare to come to this table of freedom. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, Holy Spirit, just not even talking about the rest of this day, just this moment. May I be so bold as to ask you, Lord, to speak to each person here. Speak to them. They've sought you today. Would you answer them? And may your voice of liberation Speak to them at whatever intensity is necessary to know they're loved, they're valued, they belong, and they have a mission and a purpose and a meaning. Would you, Lord, be revelatory to that end? As we examine ourselves and come to the throne of grace, May that grace be like 10,000 waterfalls, cascading on every thought, every feeling that we have, cleansing and clearing our conscience of every bit of guilt, that we may freely be who you freely need us to be to those who are in bondage in the weekend days ahead. In Jesus' name, we take the broken body of Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lamb we consume them and ask you, Father, to be a consuming fire in our own life. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Okay, um, you know the drill. If you're visiting, just follow somebody and figure it out. Come humbly to God today. We have a sensitive palate and taste and see that the Lord is good.